Continuing on in our discussion of the heaviest motivation, the doctrine of eternal conscious torment, we want to move finally in our study to the results. We asked ourselves, what is it? And we described it in five ways. Then we asked ourselves, how common is it? And I attempted to show that the wrath of God His overbearing hatred of sin is all through the scriptures. Then we asked ourselves, why then do people neglect this? Why do people who know better not talk about it? We gave three answers. They don't want to do it because it's heavy. Heavy things are hard to pick up. If there's 10 rocks to be put in the back of the bucky, and three boys working, which rocks do they pick up first? The smallest ones. Secondly, it's neglected because it will force them to do what they don't want to do. And thirdly, it's neglected because it is a sign of orthodoxy and there are many goats who call themselves sheep. I give examples of the Catholic Church, Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Emergent Church, Theological Liberals, the Prosperity Gospel, And sadly enough, even evangelicals, many of whom are true godly Christians. But I'd like to close this lecture by discussing the results. What results will come if we really believe God's word on this subject of eternal conscious torment? Number one, compassion. If this is a proper use of reflecting on God's anger, then how much more under the new covenant ought we to be full of love, easily moved, soft and tender to the same argument when made against the backdrop of hopeless, weak sinners among whom we had been reckoned before we believed on Christ and his grace opened our eyes. Before pity took on flesh, To live on the earth and die for sinners. How much severer is the punishment now when men can trample under feet the Son of God and insult the Spirit of grace? We know how much severer because the degree is captured in the words of the New Testament. Flaming fire, judgment, punishment, wrath, anger, lake of fire, eternal, day and night, torment, torments. Darkness, darkness which may be felt. The blackness of darkness, outer darkness. The weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are phrases that are used to describe this. And if we will think long on this, we will have no truth, no no choice, but be filled with compassion. When we are told to love our neighbor, the doctrine of hell shows us that this love must move us right down to our souls. And if it doesn't touch our hearts, we haven't really grappled with it. The terms that scripture uses were intended to press down the soul with the weight of reality. Where this doctrine tills the soil, the tree of compassion will bear the fruit of missions. Where this doctrine is forgotten, missions tends to wither. In the Edinburgh Ecumenical Missions Conference in 1910. Missions had begun to awaken the churches of Europe. 
Hundreds and even thousands of missionaries were leaving as missionaries from Europe to go to China and India, Africa, South America. And a missions conference was called in Scotland in 1910 where they began to doubt eternal conscious torment. Is it surprising that after 1910, the number of missionaries from those denominations involved in that missions conference began to decline? Who will leave a family and comfort and culture to take on the yoke of learning a new language, a new lifestyle amidst those with less light than he has if he is not compelled by the greatest of all realities? Number two, what will this result do? It will keep us humbled because we have all kinds of objections to it. What objections do we bring to this doctrine? Well, every objection we bring, if we think about this doctrine and believe it, we will be humbled. I'm finding this effect from all the doctrines of the Bible. Look at the incarnation and what will happen. You will find that you must be humble because the Son of God was humbled. Look at the second coming and what will happen. Luke 12, verse 37. When he returns, he will take a towel, wrap himself, and serve us. If that doesn't humble you, what will? And then he will wipe away tears from our eyes. If that doesn't humble you, what will? Some will be saved at the second coming, so as by fire. That's referring to Christians who did not lay up their treasures in heaven. Some of them will be saved, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13 and 14, like fire. Or as Job says, by the skin of their teeth. Just barely. This doctrine will humble us like every doctrine in the Bible. Come face to face with the doctrine of the eternal conscious torment. Think about what it means. Ponder it. Imagine your soul. Imagine your family or friends or loved ones or those around you. And you will either recoil and become some kind of an atheist, practicing atheist or professing atheist. Or you will become a more dedicated Christian and you will become humbled yourself. Number three, this truth will guard all other doctrines. Some time ago I heard that John MacArthur had said, The doctrine that is a test for where an institution is going is six-day creationism. As soon as an institution begins to compromise with evolution, you know that that institution is leaving biblical Christianity. I wonder if you couldn't say the same thing about the doctrine of the lake of fire. So that either the first two chapters of the Bible... Or the last four chapters of the Bible. The very beginning or the very end. It seems to me that those who call themselves Christians and evangelicals either deny this doctrine by quiet avoidance. Like all the false teachers around us. They don't believe in repentance, but they'll never come out and say... Just so you all know, I don't believe in repentance. False teachers are never gentlemen. They're never honest. They don't have character. Like in Psalm 15, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. They'll never do that because they're goats. They hide all of their false teaching and they're deceptive. They're slippery like wet soap in the shower. Like trying to catch a fish in a lake with your bare hands. 
You can't catch them. And if you do catch them, they'll get right out again. But this truth, if you'll hold it and proclaim it, if you'll be honest, we believe this at our church. It almost acts like a bellwether. For many years now, I've been asked by Afrikaners, often in shock, but not always, why did you come to this country? Especially after they've seen that I've been here for many years. If I just meet them, they might ask, you have a passport to America? Why are you still here? And I consistently answer. Revelation 20.15 says, if your name is not in the book of life, you will be cast into the lake of fire. I believe that with all my heart. I could give a number of answers. I could say, oh, I love God and the glory of God. I don't think that would get in. I could say, have you never seen the glory of the risen Christ in your soul with spiritual eyes of, of your heart? He would look and say, these Americans are a little crazy. But if I say to him, the Bible says if your name is not in the book, you're going to burn in a lake of fire. And I believe that. I have found that in less than 30 seconds, that makes it very clear. That man knows with whom he is dealing. He is dealing with a Bible believer. He's dealing with someone who is probably not like him. Probably. I say probably because many times, as soon as I say that line, I can tell the conversation wants to, they want to change the conversation. So what's life like in America? Is there, is there much crime? No, no, wait, wait, wait. Let's go back to this a minute. I'm not done with this first conversation. It seems to guard all other doctrines. In fact, it is difficult to find a denomination and even another religion that believes in the literal fires of hell outside of Bible-believing Reformed Christians. And there are God-fearing Armenian Christians as well who believe in the literal fires of hell. But it does have a guarding effect. Because if you believe in the fires of hell, then you can't believe in universalism. If you believe in the fires of hell, you're going to believe there's only one way to get out of those fires. If you believe in the fires of hell, you're going to believe the Bible has no errors. This truth guards all other doctrines. And let us close tonight with an exhortation not to forget this doctrine. Luke 12, 4 and 5. In fact, let's turn there and see that passage. I've quoted it before, but let's just look at it this evening. Luke 12, verse 4. And I say to you, my friends, be not afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not fear those that kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. How clear is he being in verse four? Do not. It's a negative command. Stop doing this thing you're doing. What thing must they stop? It's an affection of their heart. Stop this affection, you people. What affection is it? It's a very common one. You are fearing people who can kill you. But he's only talking about some group. He's saying, don't fear the group 
that kills and then their power is over. There is a group like that. Who would you call that group? They kill people and then their power has come to an end. Who is that group? Men. Men. Humans. All of them. From the richest, most powerful tycoon, from the people controlling the World Economic Forum, to the insane people who are trying to change the world through transgenderism and every other kind of insanity. Those people, the worst they can possibly do is torture you, cutting off one finger at a time. It's the worst they can do. Verse 5. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Oh, negative than a positive. Thank you. That's good logic. In verse 4, he gives a negative. Don't do this. Well, then what should I do? I'll tell you. Just keep listening. Stop worrying about the people who are limited. They're limited by simple death. That's a pretty tight limit. When death comes, they've hit a brick wall. No one can go past that. But there's a group that can. Verse 5. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him whom, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. He repeats the command twice, so you can't possibly forget it. It's at the beginning and at the end. The negative, then the positive. I want there to be no confusion in this. The group that you must not fear is presented in a way that everyone knows who he's talking about. He's talking about all the humans that you're used to fearing. And then he says God, but he doesn't say the name of God. Instead of saying simply God or the Lord or Jehovah or my father or myself or my spirit. Instead of saying that, what does he say? He gives a description. Fear that one who walks right over the brick wall. That one who has no boundaries. That one who steps past what blocks everyone else. Fear that one who, after reaching death, can go on. Either in happiness or in torment. Fear that one. Our Lord Jesus does not want us to forget this doctrine. Who is this teaching given to? It tells us in verse 4. Who was it given to? Look at the text. My friends. friends. The disciples. The disciples are there and he says, "Hey, hey, hey, you think of yourselves as sheep. So let me talk to you all. You supposed sheep? You think you're a sheep? Let me tell you the way a sheep feels in his heart. You can't tell me how to feel. Yes, I can because I'm the Lord of both your brain and your heart. I can tell you how to think. I can tell you how to feel. I can tell you what to do with your hands. I can and will be the Lord of your heart. Come, my friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. I have not called you servants, but I have called you friends. For the servants do not know what his Lord does, but I'm telling you what I'm going to do. Here he says to them, Keep on fearing the one who can cast you into hell. Friends, it must not be forgotten because it is a powerful motive to missions. It is always attacked. It is always weakened, denied, and ignored because it speaks with a single voice to the greatness of our depravity, to the vile nature of our own sins. It necessarily raises God to a very high position. 
I have thought before in my soul. Which doctrine raises God to a higher position? His absolute unfettered sovereignty or his just and interminable wrath? You can tell me, what do you think? Which one? It's common for Calvinists to say, well, the doctrine of God's sovereignty lifts up God. And I don't deny that. It certainly does. I think I've quoted you before. Charles Spurgeon said, men love God at all times until he sits on his throne. Speaking of his sovereignty. Yes, Christ does have a throne and a crown. Isaac Watts' poem says, he who distributes crowns and thrones. That's the sovereign Lord Jesus. And we love the doctrine of election and sovereignty because it exalts God. It says he is king and answerable to no one. He does what he pleases in all the host of heavens. And everyone looks to him and no one can say, why have you done this? Psalm 115, 1-3. But on the other hand, we have this. Where he doesn't ask your advice. He didn't come down and say, maybe after some time, I'll see what all the men think is a good kind of punishment. He told us long before the world, I'm going to allow sin and the penalty for sin is an eternity in a devil's hell, a hell prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not yours. It's the devil's. But I'm going to put you where the devil goes because you're his child. This is terrifying. And I've often thought it may be this doctrine that raises him in the highest, most lofty position above our hearts. Let me give you some excuses people will say. Some will say, but this punishment doesn't fit the crime. Answer, who are you to determine which punishment Fits the crime. Not all of these are in the notes. So you can write them down if you want. Who are you to determine which punishment fits the crime? Are you the judge of all the earth? Genesis 18.25. Shouldn't it be the judge of all the earth that tells us what the crime is and what the punishment is? You say, well, it's too harsh. I just can't take it. I can't imagine some old woman going to hell for all eternity. Wasn't that old woman once a young woman? Didn't she have Christ offered to her? Didn't she look up at the clouds and the skies and the stars? And didn't she have in her own heart and in her own conscience, Romans 2.15, the law of God written on her conscience? And she said, Romans 1 verse 18, no. She suppressed the truth. She pushed down the truth and she closed the, the lid and locked it and said, I don't want any of that. Did she not do that when she was 21 and 22 and 23 and 24? And for 50 years until she reached 70, who are you to say it's too harsh for an old woman to get the just reward of 70 years of her constant breaking of God's law? It doesn't seem fair to me. Ah, but you need to get back in your position. The judge of all the earth is the king. Wells says an atheist, third objection. 
I simply could never worship a God who tortures people. And if that really is the way it goes, then I will take my chances. And when he goes, I will stand up in a blaze of glory and curse at him and say, send me to hell if that's what you think justice is. But for all eternity, you'll have to remember that this is unjust. And he who sits in the heavens will laugh. He will have you in confusion. He is right and the standard for right. And your petty objection will be no more than ants or mosquitoes or cockroaches gathering together to say, we despise the one who made us and offered every kind of happiness to us. Because if you get to tell your God what he is like, then he is not a God. You are the God. Are you so prideful that you think some sinners deserve God's judgment like Hitler, but you don't? Isn't that prideful to think you're better than Hitler? On what terms are you better than Hitler? Well, I've never killed six million people. Have you got angry before? Brothers and sisters, the measure of God's love will be seen when it is compared to the depth of his hatred at all, the attack, all that attacks what he loves. And he is full of wrath. And this ought to fill our hearts to save all those that we can reach while life is still given to us. Any questions tonight? Yes. Uh, you said in page uh, the, bar- the barking paradox is false as well. Um, I was just wondering, is there any sense in which you can say God's love caused hell or yeah, his love or his Um, I think I'll answer here like Jonathan Edwards answered when he was asked, is God the author of sin? That's not the way we usually use language. But if you want to, in a very carefully worded statement, say, God loved his own glory and in order to get the most glory, he must give men this testing time of sin so that he may display his grace on the vessels of mercy and his wrath on the vessels of wrath. If you wanted to couch it that way, then I think you could make a case for that. But I don't think that is the way most people use the word love. And so in that way, I don't think you're playing by the rules. Unless there's a very good reason we should stick with the words that everybody's used to using. If everyone uses love to mean pouring out of kindness to those we love, we should use it that way. And in that sense, wrath is not a pouring out of kindness. But, but I guess there is a way that you could say, well, it was love for his son because his son is now getting the full but, but um, opposite honor by those who are judged. Any other questions? Let's take a break.